Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments is here to guide us through all this happening on global markets later in the show. We're also going to be joined by Saspen Wells and Rian Prinsloo to discuss their global equity fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, here's a quick look at what's been making the headlines. The U.S. growth slowed unexpectedly in the fourth quarter. GDP grew by 2.6%, down from the previous quarter's 3.2%, weighed down by a sharp rise in imports. Economists had penciled in growth of 3%. Rising imports highlight the challenges that Trump's administration faces in its bid to boost growth to 3%. U.S. computer maker Dell Technologies is considering various options that could see the company increasing its growth through acquisitions or by going public. The company is under pressure to boost its profitability after its EMC deal failed to deliver on performance and cost savings. And a bumper data diary this week could confirm 2017 as the Eurozone's best year in over a decade and add more pressure to the soaring single European currency. For dollar traders, the direction of travel could persist in the opposite direction as U.S. markets brace for Friday's non-farm payrolls release. Here's more on that. If the euro was the star turn as one week closed, it might take centre stage again as another one opens. Data from across the eurozone expected to confirm 2017 as its best year for growth in over a decade. German unemployment, French GDP and eurozone manufacturing PMIs all in a busy diary that could force the single currency even further above the three-year highs it set on Thursday. For the US, it's the big one. Non-farm payrolls that may or may not confirm a robust growth outlook there. The headline figure hasn't been too impressive the last couple of months. Traders are going to be keeping an eye uh, on the US jobs report to see if the US economy is, is doing as well in terms of unemployment and jobs as it is in, say, housing and manufacturing and, and uh, consumer confidence. Traders anxious too to see what direction the greenback will take and whether it'll be down again. A half a percent slide on Friday, pushing it towards its biggest monthly drop in nearly two years. For yuan bulls, that was good news. China's currency put in some of its biggest gains since September. If bad news for Chinese exports and a manufacturing sector where markets are on guard for any signs of weakness. The Kaishin manufacturing numbers are going to be closely watched. China is effectively going from, say, fifth gear down to third or fourth gear. It's still growing at a very considerable rate, a rate that countries in the West would, would only dream of. After better-than-expected UK growth numbers last week, its Brexit story is once again on the reading list. Tuesday's mortgage and credit data from the Bank of England offer the latest narratives on a fragile UK consumer. And Friday is the PMI release day for construction, a sector whose reading slowed last month for the first time since September. Well, Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments joining me in studio. Um, Stephen, welcome back. Um, and maybe let's start with that Eurozone great, uh, growth data because we have um, German unemployment coming out this week. We have French growth and everything seems to be pointing to a very strong Eurozone economy at the moment, which is good for the euro, or boost the euro, which might not be good for the economy going forward. Absolutely. So no shortage of data coming through uh, this week. We've seen a lot of optimism coming out of Europe. Um, we're seeing this week we're going to get confirmation of growth numbers. But I think it's fair to say that it's going to be somewhere around 2.4% for the year. Uh, just to put that in context, last year we started 2017 expecting about 1.7%. So a very healthy acceleration in growth numbers. We've also seen a little bit of easing um, from an inflation perspective. So inflation is down to 1.4% and ultimately it feels like Europe's getting a bit of its rhythm back. Um, we 
and that's in spite of the stronger euro, as you mentioned, um, which creates a little bit of a, a headwind for particularly for Germany, yeah. particularly for exporting Germany. Uh, correct. Um, so, but I suppose as, as good as things seem in Europe at the moment, uh, we are destined in the next couple of weeks to start picking up on some negative headlines in the form of Italian elections. Um, so we see Italian elections now scheduled for the 4th of March um, with Italian President Sergio Matt Mattarella um, sure. announcing that he'll be dissolving Parliament. Um, and there really the issue is, although Italy's not Europe's largest economy, um, it's got debt to GDP of about 130%. It's also got a disproportionately large banking system. So definitely the possibility for hiccups. Um, the most popular party as it sits today, if polls are to be believed, uh, is the right-wing five-star movement. The problem there is uh, they control about 25% of the Italian vote um, and they are pretty dogmatic in not accepting coalition terms. So if they do secure 25% and there's no prominent winner um, out of Italy, what you could potentially find is a bit of a stalemate, so a hung parliament, mm -hmm. uh, which is a worst case scenario for okay. the region. Um, I mean, could this create instability in the European economy? So I think instability, uh, yes. Uh, I think the biggest risk would obviously be the financial system, um, so contagion from the banking system. And some of their banks have collapsed in recent years. Absolutely. So very fragile banking system, disproportionately large, and ultimately that can ripple right through Europe. Um, and we've seen the effects of that. Uh, look no further than uh, the euro crisis a few years back, just to see how quickly that sort of a contagion can spread. Okay. Uh, let's look at the U.S. then, because we've got the dollar um, trading to three-year low at the moment. Um, and it seems we, we had Steve Mnuchin last week at Davos saying they quite like the weak dollar, but Donald Trump saying they would like a strong dollar. Um, so not quite sure where that dollar is going to go. Um, but that should be good for the U.S. economy going forward. Yeah, so it, it appears to be a, a bit of a, a schizophrenic U.S. politician scenario at the moment. One minute it's strong, next minute it's weak. Uh, the reality is the, the dollar's been gradually sliding since Donald Trump's election um, and him becoming president. So about a year back, it is at a three-year low at the moment. Um, on the first announcement, it was a good thing, and, and now Donald Trump talking it up, uh, hopefully strengthening the U.S. dollar. The reality is uh, a weak dollar, as you mentioned, does help from an export perspective, so, so certainly could be a boost for growth. Um, but what we're finding at the moment is the U.S. actually has an import problem, funnily mm -hmm. enough. So it's pushing up that import bill. Correct. Um, I think a lot of it hangs on inflation data, and the reason why I, I allude to inflation is with an inflation buildup in the economy, we're likely to see quicker interest rate increases, and that will probably affect the US dollar. In fact, it will it'll probably be the biggest driver of dollar strength, uh, barring something going horribly wrong. Mm. In the meantime, though, that, that weak dollar has added to oil's rally, and we have oil trading just around that $70 a, a barrel level, um, up 6.3% this month alone. Yeah, so the, the, the rise of, of oil has been absolutely phenomenal. It's up about 25% over 12 months. Uh, there's a number of reasons. Uh, as you mentioned, probably the largest at the moment is, is the weak dollar, um, which makes oil more attractive for investors. Um, there are several other contributing factors. Um, namely, we've got Russia and Saudi that have reaffirmed their pledge uh, to tighten back on supply. Mm -hmm. We've also seen a, an uncharacteristically disciplined OPEC, uh, also tightening the market from a supply perspective. And we've seen oil inventories in the U.S. Um, contract for 10 weeks in a row. Um, all of that on a, on a global backdrop where we realistically um, synchronized growth. And we're looking at about 3.1% of growth uh, generated for the year, which is obviously oil hungry. Um, and you've got the settings for a $70 a barrel, if not more. 
Mm. Well, let's put that into perspective, though, because you sent through a graph um, charting the oil price against the equity markets um, and, and what the longer-term trend has been. Correct. Um, so I think oil is probably the best expression of commodity price rally at the moment, um, but that needn't be limited to oil. Uh, we see a number of base commodities also rallying. Um, so what you find today is a situation where uh, commodities relative to equity markets are the cheapest on record. So in a market where it's very difficult to find a bargain, mm -hmm. most global equity markets are, are today expensive. Um, I think commodities in general and commodity producers by extension uh, represent one of those rare exceptions where there's a bit of value to be had. Okay, so commodities are cheap, equities are expensive. Absolutely. Um, so would you be change your positions to suit that picture? Yeah, so the problem is equities have been expensive for some time and continue to get more expensive. So it's not necessary to suggest that there's not room to go. Um, we've seen earnings um, particularly favorable at the moment. Commodities, I think, are, are possibly uh, the ones due for a bit of upside. Um, but even from a, an earnings perspective, if you have a look at fourth quarter earnings at the moment, there's an expectation of about 13.2%. That's the market consensus. Um, and that's quarter on quarter. What we're finding is 133 of the 500 largest companies have already reported, approximately 80% exceeding expectations. Mm. Um, so even though those are healthy and demanding expectations, the market is outperforming that. So certainly if they can continue to drive that sort of revenue growth, there's no reason why the market can't continue to rally. Mm. Well, one share that didn't uh, exceed expectations was Starbucks. Its shares were down over 4% on Friday. And it, it reported a particularly disappointing uh, festive season. Yeah, so Starbucks is a very interesting one. Uh, it's one that I previously quite liked. Um, Starbucks, unfortunately, experienced sales growth of, of a meager 2% across all regions. Um, and shareholders clearly voting uh, a negative on that. Uh, I think the rare exception to that was China, where they experienced about a 6% um, sales growth. The reality is, um, I think they've got a very saturated US market at the moment and, and a US consumer, which is they're battling to upsell. Mm -hmm. um, they've also got uh, new competition um, in the likes of a, a McDonald's, funnily enough. Uh, McDonald's now launching a campaign with a $2 cappuccino, which by South African standards doesn't sound that cheap, but I'm led to believe it is in the States. Um, so I think a saturated market, heavily indebted consumer uh, globally, um, and just, just very lack of appetite. So surprising on the downside and absolutely punished for it. Okay. Um, one company that has done well, though, is LVMH. Um, it's had better than expected sales and profits and apparently a revival in Chinese demand, which is something similar to what Richemont's experienced. Yeah. So, look, it wasn't so long ago that China was all the rage with your luxury good consumers. Um, unfortunately, that sort of waned over the last, let's call it, six, eight months with a clampdown on, on uh, corruption. Um, but what we found is, a, is an absolute revival. Uh, that also, I suppose, in a sense, is linked to, to the prosperous economic times. A lot of demand coming out of the US as well as Europe at the moment. We saw them exceeding expectations on both uh, sales as well as revenue. Um, and as a result, in fact, lifted the entire sector. Um, so I think they were up about 4.9% on the announcement. They also announced that they, they had a particularly good start to the year. We're not quite sure what that means. Um, and in sympathy, we saw the likes of a Richmond, uh, a Christian Dior, et cetera, all rally uh, in response. So all raising a glass of Dom Perignon. Yeah. Um, 
But the show you would like to buy, so your stock pick would be Amazon. And it's a show you've talked about before on the show, so it's not a new fad for you. Yeah, look, un unfortunately, uh, I suppose it's not too controversial. Um, it, is, it is the market consensus. I mean, Amazon is a company that's up 70% in US dollars over the last 12 months. Um, I, I suppose it, it's going to come as a shock to many, but it's starting to feel a little bit less like a tech counter at the moment. Just ask any American who orders toilet paper and gets it delivered. So it's a uh, retailer. Yeah. It's a consumer staple company. Uh, with the, with the likes of a Whole Foods transaction. They generate now $16 billion worth of revenue from groceries. And there's now rumors that they'll be entering the pharmacy business. Um, they sell more uh, in-house batteries than Duracell. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to categorize them at present. Um, and do they do their own logistics? They do indeed. Uh, logistics is, is one of their specialities. Uh, and in fact, there's a bit of an assault on some of the, some of the logistics companies. Um, but I think one thing's for sure, as expensive as they are and as hard as they've rallied, um, there seems to be no segment of the market that they're not keen to conquer uh, and proving successful in doing so. Okay, well, we're going to be chatting about Amazon again after the break because uh, it's one of the shares in the Sassfin Global Equity Fund portfolio. Uh, Rian Prinster will be joining us in studio to discuss that. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio is Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments. Joining us to put forward the investment case for the Sassfin Global Equity Fund is Sassfin Wealth's Rian Prinsloo. Um, Rian, thanks very much for coming in. So Amazon, one of the shares, in fact, one of your top five holdings in the, in the fund. And uh, as Stephen pointed out earlier, they are coming out with results uh, this week. So are you, are you nervous? We're not. Amazon is in the midst of an investment cycle, but longer term, I agree with Stephen 100%. They operate in two of the biggest emerging markets within the tech industry, cloud computing and e-commerce. Those markets are only about 10 to 15% penetrated, so we still see a l on in longer term a good runway for the stock. But yes, they are in a higher investment cycle, so we might see some short disappointment. Okay, well, let's take a step back and look at the, the Global Equity Fund. Uh, it was launched, um, the feeder fund was launched um, towards the end of last year, yes. and the, the actual fund was launched a little bit earlier um, last year, so uh, not much of a track record yet, but you said there is a simulated fund performance um, that you have put together. So how would this fund have performed over the, the longer term? So bottom line is we have been outperforming the MSL country world, which is our benchmark, and we've outperformed by quite a decent margin. So we're comfortable with our investment philosophy. Mm. So uh, what kind of gain would you have had last year on the fund? Last year we did about 10%. Uh, no, we, we did about an excess of 4% on the MSCI. On the MSCI. Yeah. Um, so the fund is a dollar-based fund, yes. and then the feeder fund, which was launched in October, is a rand-based fund, so for those investors who don't want to externalize mm -hmm. their, their money. That is correct, yes. So the feeder fund is for people that want to keep their money in South Africa. They intend to continue living in South Africa, but they want global exposure, where our usage-based Luxembourg fund is for investors that want to externalize their capital. And does it make a difference to, to, your, to the, f the fee structure for the fund? Not really, no. The fee structure is very similar. Okay. Um, and almost fully invested, just a small portion of cash at this point. Yes. So we are still ramping the fund. We're expecting a lot of cash to hopefully come into the fund. So we are fully invested at this stage, yes. Okay. And you're hoping that lots of our viewers will... You have to put forward the case for it then. <laughs> and so IT, you talked about Amazon, but IT is close to 20% of the fund. So obviously very big tech exposure, mm -hmm. which would have done very, very well last year. Yes. So we, we own about 5% Amazon, about 5% Alphabet, and we've done very well out of those stocks. We equally weighted to... So 
we're not overweight in terms of our benchmark, but we've done very well out of our tech exposure, and Amazon and Alphabet has done the heavy lifting, yes. Okay. Would you be getting anxious with all that tech exposure yeah, so after the strong run that we saw in NASDAQ last year? Well, look, it's, it's, it's certainly proven a benefit over the last couple of months. Um, would it be fair to say that, uh, obviously, looking at the tech exposure, 20% of the fund uh, or thereabout, would it be fair to say that the fund is a very actively managed fund that focuses on themes, tech being one of them at the moment, and investors can expect that to, to change quite significantly as we move through the different parts of the cycle? So the fund is actively managed, yes, but we don't trade the fund. So we take longer term positions, but we don't, and yeah, we don't continuously trade in and out of stocks. We take longer term views on thematic um, approaches that we see in the market, yes. Mm -hmm. So also some of the other themes you're seeing in the markets at the moment? So broadly we see an aging population and we have a few companies that benefit from that. We see urbanization, so more people moving into cities and we there's a few companies that will benefit from that. Um, a rising middle class, especially in South Asia, and um, automation is one of the other themes that we have quite a recent exposure to. So, so what sorts of companies benefit from urbanization? Um, companies like Siemens, for instance, in the longer term would benefit from urbanization. So they're in the process of spinning out their health business called Healthineers. After that, they'll focus on electrification, automation, and digitalization. They're currently, they're one of the companies helping big OEMs, so big manufacturers, to um, automate their factory floors which is a big trend we're seeing at the moment, but eventually they want to help cities automate not only the transportation system, system but their grids and so on. So those are the sort of themes we're seeing and companies that are we're taking advantage of. And of course, uh, Amazon straddles both the IT and, as Stephen pointed out earlier, consumer discretionary, uh, which is your second biggest um, sector exposure. Yes, so we are still bullish on the consumer. We think globally growth is strong. Consumer discretionary spend is a big portion of that. So we're bullish on the US consumer. We're bullish on the European consumer. We see, we've seen quite a bit of deleveraging and we think that they should start to benefit. So, and also still bullish on the Chinese consumer as well. I see the, the fund's got suspiciously little resource exposure, 5% energy and little else. Yes, yeah, so we have about, we own one energy sector uh, counter, Royal Dutch Shell, and we, of all the resource companies, we're most bullish on the energy, energy counters. We've had the position for a while, and we've participated in a strong rally. Also, what we like about the, especially the integrated oil companies, is their cash flow positive at a much lower oil price. So the recent fall in oil prices caused these companies to heavy cut back on costs. A lot of their capex have become opex, so they focus a lot more on managing their dividend exposure, managing their current growth. And we think these companies are profitable even if oil prices would retreat, although that is not our case. No base case. I see the, the second largest holding in the portfolio is Alphabet, yes. Google holding company. Um, George Soros is probably one of one of many names uh, in Davos that's that's almost taken a, a very aggressive stance mm -hmm. on what he calls antitrust. Yes. Do you see that as a passing theme or is that a genuine risk for a counter like Alphabet? I think it is a genuine risk for a counter like Alphabet, but I think it is some most of it is in the price. Alphabet has been compounding earning revenue at about 21% or around 20% for the last 31 quarters. Um, we expect that to continue even if that tempers that we do expect operating margins to expand. If you take the uh, Alphabet's currently sitting on a lot of cash, if you take that out of the company's multiple, then your price to earnings ratio is close to 20 times forward. We don't think the company is, uh, is very expensive relative to the growth we expect and think we think part of that has to do with the regulatory risk already being in the price. Okay.
Berkshire Hathaway as your yes. biggest holding. And I have to ask you, do you have the, the Class A shares, which cost $324,000 each, or do you have the Class B shares, which are only $216? Unfortunately, the Class B shares, um, we like Berkshire Hathaway. I think there's a few synergies you get from Berkshire Hathaway that you won't get if you buy any of the holding com or any of the companies they own separately. For instance, Berkshire Hathaway owns Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which is a utility company. Utility companies have the problem that their input costs fluctuate quite a lot, but their revenue line is quite fixed because it's determined by governments. Um, Berkshire Hathaway also owns Burlington North Santa Fe, which is a railroad company, which would benefit from fluctuating and rising commodity prices. So there's a bit of offset within the portfolio. Furthermore, Berkshire Hathaway has, has a massive um, as a massive equity portfolio and with the changes in US tax regulations, so US tax taxes were cut from 35% to 21%. Uh, with those changes, Berkshire Hathaway stands to benefit. Then I think furthermore, Berkshire Hathaway is currently sitting on about 100 billion in cash. In going, uh, Warren Buffett said last year that if he sits on 150 billion in cash by 2019, he won't be able to defend that to investors. We estimate that Berkshire Hathaway runs on about 30 billion of operating expenditure per year. So if he would pay about 20 billion away in a special dividend, that would leave him with another 100 billion in to do. Uh, to shoot an elephant, as he calls it, or to do a major acquisition. So we think that a lot of the tax cuts are already in the price. We think the company should be able to compound uh, or to, to grow its book value per share by high single digit to low, um, high single digits to low um, double digits. And um, we think that the share trades are the multiple to that. So that so we expect the company to benefit from decent um, European or decent American growth. Um, a potential special dividend and tax cuts going forward. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. With, with the exception of Royal Dutch Shoal, all the companies are talking about are US-based. How do you think about geographic opportunities uh, within the fund? That's a very good question. We tend to invest in companies that are multinational. So we don't really focus that much on where companies listed. We focus a lot more on where they earn their revenue. For instance, when Unilever, Unilever generates 60% of their revenue outside of developed markets in emerging markets, markets like China and India and Brazil. Those economies are still growing well and there's a lot of people rising to be able to purchase branded items for the first time and we think a company like Unilever would benefit from that. Also benefiting from urbanization for instance. So I mean w would the split though be still around 50% US um, which most of those global In terms of revenue exposure yes. So in terms of revenue exposure I think we would earn about 60, uh, 50 to 60% outside of the US depending on classification. Uh, and, and your thoughts on, on European growth at the moment and what that could do for European listed counters. Yeah, so you guys mentioned uh, Germany. We, th we are still quite bullish on Germany. We think that the German companies are very pro-cyclical, so you could find a situation where German companies actually outperform even with a rising euro. The reason is that they're very operationally geared to the global economy. There's a lot of exporting companies. And um, so yeah, we, we focus on those companies. I also agree that we think the financial sector might still be a little bit undercapitalized. So even though it looks like there's value, we are not investing there at the moment. Okay. Uh, your thoughts on the fund? And uh, yeah. So I suppose it's it's always difficult to say without predicting the future. Um, but what do you see as the as the biggest risk, the single biggest risk on the portfolio at the moment? 
I think the single biggest risk for markets is policy error on monetary policy. So I think the biggest risk would be hiking rates too quickly. That would stifle global growth. I think the second biggest risk would be a China overheating. China's busy at the moment re um, reducing their growth. They, they have a very um, strong housing market and that's become a bit of a concern for markets. So I think China overheating and policy area would be the biggest risks towards global markets and towards the portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, you were, ta ta we were, ta we were talking about growth in Europe and also inflation coming back in line. So do you think there is a risk of, of rates being hiked in Europe sooner rather than later? Absolutely. So, so I think the policy risk probably exists across the board. Uh, so the US, Europe, uh, even a Japan, for different reasons, uh, could potentially have a bit of a misstep. Um, and one needn't look too far back into the past to see what a, what a temper tantrum looks like. Um, so that could definitely be upsetting for the markets, and I tend mm. to agree with that uh, as the biggest risk. Yeah, I, I think that Europe's an interesting space because you have Mario Draghi as um, well ending his tenure at the end of 2019, October 2019. He's trying his best to talk down the euro. He's not really succeeding. Um, so most likely in June they'll announce tapering in September. Then in June next year they'll most likely, s there'll be some sort of signaling towards a first hike in interest rates. Then maybe in September the year or the s uh, in the next at, at the next meeting they'll hike rates again. That would leave Mario Draghi to have saved the eurozone because rates would be at 0% and QE would have been tapered. And I think he would like that legacy and I think there's a lot of market participants that you don't uh, ego is always involved to some extent well let's hope it goes according to your plan <laughs> yes, <laughs> leave it there, though. thank you very much for coming thank you for your time thanks that's all we have time for the show this week thanks again to Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments Rian Prinsler from Sassfin Wealth uh, many thanks to you for watching same time next week goodbye